Welcome to episode 117 of the Swampflix podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I'm Brittany Lombas. And I'm James Cohn. And we are recording in three separate locations. I would normally say New Orleans here, but in Southeast Louisiana, because Brittany fled the city because there's a <laughs> hurricane coming right towards us. I did. And I kind of went actually closer to where the hurricane's going to hit, I think. <laughs> You went down to the bayou? I'm in the bayou. I'm sitting in my childhood bedroom in La Rose, Louisiana right now. Oh, uh, man. Yeah. Wow. It's full of like some parts for boats that my dad's building, and my Nickelodeon phone, and some decorations for Halloween. <laughs> it's a very sad place. I'm going to need more information on this Nickelodeon phone. Is it like the, the 90s orange plastic? No, it's kind of like this bluish, like metallic-y blue and it has like this mad scientist looking like squiggle and whenever it rings it goes Nickelodeon and you can also glad I asked you can swap it to the cow moo sound and stuff and I also have the alarm clock I have a Nickelodeon phone and alarm clock both are not plugged in but I don't want to get rid of them but yeah, so I'm here because my parents have a generator, so I brought, like, all my frozen food. <laughs> I'm just a big, like, sissy when it comes to storms and riding them out alone and not having um, air. Yeah. More so for my pet. Yeah, that's the worst is just the sitting without power for a week, waiting for things to go back to normal. It gets yeah. it starts to weigh you down, like, emotionally after a few days. Well, because, like, for Isaac, like, this is, like, giving me, like, Isaac flashbacks where I didn't have power for a whole week and I was just going nuts and I was like sleeping on my porch <laughs> because it was cooler there than it was inside and I just remember like losing my mind and just yelling a bunch at everybody and then also I have a smaller car now and I'm like it, it my street does flood so yeah James and I definitely know about um, antagonizing each other and losing our minds during a yeah power outage yeah I think like Probably by the third day when everyone's just pumping themselves full of alcohol and you're hot and you haven't showered, you just sort of devolve as a person. And It's, it's sweaty. Bad. Everyone smells like a big onion patch. And like I could still taste like remnants of Vienna sausage. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like and canned ravioli. Mm. Like I get the I get all that back. I'm not looking forward to Sally. <laughs> So hopefully I can squeeze editing this podcast in before the power goes out. Uh, otherwise, it's going to throw my whole schedule off. Damn it. Damn storm. <laughs> Damn it to shit. <laughs> Which will tell you like how um, little I'm really worried. I think it's just going to knock some power out, maybe flood a little bit, but hopefully uh, not too bad. Oh, yeah. Like, deep down, I know it's going to be okay, but my anxiety is like, Brittany, if you think it's going to be okay, it's just going to be worse. You're stupid. <laughs> you know? I will say this is the first one of this hurricane season where I'm actually a little scared. Just like there's something about it that's going to hit us directly. Yeah. And, you know, it's strengthening. We don't know it's going to be a category one or a category two, maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, it's got me a little freaked out, but we're going to be fine. I think that small amount of fear is healthy, though. You want to like have preparations like yeah. Yeah, water take it and seriously. gasoline in case it gets bad, but... Other than that, I mean, there's not much you can do about it's it. It's just going to be some wind and some rain when you yep. think about it, you know? We're going to be okay. Yeah. Nice. 
I'm going to play this back in a week and be horrified by our <laughs> how wrong response. we are not meteorologists. <laughs> Do not take our advice. Well, uh, it's been a while since I've talked to y'all because uh, Hannah filled in on the last episode. So in the past month, have y'all been watching any movies? I'm curious. I've been watching a lot of movies. Where to begin? <laughs> well, the first thing I wanted to bring up was I did on your recommendation, Brandon, I watched Tom Hardy give probably the performance of the year as Cap- as Capote. Capone. Oh, sorry. Not Truman Capote. <laughs> Al Capone. Who's to say that it's any better or worse than Philip Seymour Hoffman as Capote, you know? Who's to say? I think it is better. <laughs> no, dude, that movie was such a hoot. Like, mm-hmm. I was so entertained <laughs> with the... The shitting the bed, the hallucinations, the just horrific portrayal of that character. Like, they really let Tom Hardy just go three sheets to the wind. God bless Tom Hardy, you know? I know, right? <laughs> and it was it was one of those performances where it was like, I couldn't tell, if is this really good or really bad? And does it matter? I just know that I'm entertained. It's truly Nick Cagean in that exact way. Yeah, I don't know if you have any opinions on this, but I don't think the movie itself, like the writing or even the hallucinatory narrative, like does anything to match that level of energy. Like, I feel like he's doing the most and everything else is pretty lazy. Yeah. It's like they gave him free reign, which was a good decision, but the movie surrounding him doesn't really work. The film itself is not great, but his performance, oh my God, like, And he's on screen for like pretty much the whole movie. Yeah. So I was extremely entertained. I know that it's not technically a good movie, but man, what a hoot to see him just chew it up. (laughs) I I had a blast. I'm both excited and concerned about the possibility that this movie is going to be on like our Swamp Flicks top list. (laughs) Oh, bring it on. It probably will. (laughs) For performance, like, like I said, favorite performance of the year so far he gets a swampy we haven't had a fun outlier like that since uh the boy in 2015 or 2016 oh it's been a while since we've had something really dumb in our top 10 so i welcome it that one stuck out and i I think the only other one that i wanted to bring up was monkey shines are (gasps) y'all familiar with it it's a george romero film is that when that man is like handicapped yeah He's oh a yeah, paraplegic. And yes, they get him a helper monkey, and then there's it's like a psychological horror where mm-hmm. him and the monkey's mind it's like a telepathy, and the monkey acts on his like rage, and they sort of become one, and the monkey starts murdering people, and I thought it was going to be like a straightforward horror film, and it's like very interesting psychologically, and it also is just so much fun to see this monkey do stuff like the monkey is the star of the show and I'm just entertained by monkeys. And so for two hours, you're just watching, you know, a monkey do all these things. And it's so entertaining. I I really loved this movie. I don't don't know if y'all have seen it, but I've seen it. Have you seen, um, I used to rent it in VHS days and um have you ever seen like the the VHS cover or the movie poster for this movie? Yeah, where it's like the monkey with the um with like two symbols. The two symbols, yeah. 
Which is what... It's haunting, right? Like, just that cover where it's, like, this dark, shadowy, like, monkey with two symbols. And it's, like, monkey shines. An experiment in fear. Or something like that. And again, like, I remember that cover so much from when I was a kid going to the video store. and But I'd, I had never seen it until I watched it very recently. And again, I thought it was going to be just like, oh, a generic horror movie where the monkey kills people. And it was like way more interesting mm-hmm. than it had any right to be. And like, I loved it. I thought it was great. So Brandon, if you haven't seen it, you got to No, I haven't seen it, but it does sound like not that different from watching Tom Hardy perform circus stunts in Capone. <laughs> watching this monkey perform uh, stunts in this uh, Good Georgia God, movie. good God. <laughs> this sounds like a good double feature of like Monkey Shines and then Capone. <laughs> <laughs> they should have called Capone Monkey Shines. That's yeah. a great t- uh, alternate title. <laughs> that, that would be a good double feature just for pure... This is why I go to the movies. Like I just want to be entertained, whether it's a monkey... <laughs> Or whether it's Tom Hardy, like, you know, his and gr- grunting and shitting his pants. And <laughs> I, I'm so entertained by both of these films. Throw in Freddy Got Fingered for the full, like, triple feature. <laughs> oh, God, yes. I have been wanting to rewatch that for a while. So those are the two that really stand out to me. What about you, Brittany? Anything uh, on your radar recently? So I finally finally got around to watching Ratatouille. Mm. The world has been working against me to watch Ratatouille. I've been wanting to watch it. I couldn't find a copy of it on VOD that's easily accessible and not super expensive. I ended up getting my hands on a DVD copy. Then my DVD player broke. No. I know. And I just wanted to watch Ratatouille. And then I ended up like finding someone on Facebook Marketplace that had like a Blu-ray player for 15 bucks. Because they're stupid expensive, like brand new. So finally I get my hands on a DVD player and I watch Ratatouille. And it was so good. <laughs> like It's really great. Yeah. Yes. Like it's so magical and disgusting at the same time because Initially, I thought this was just going to be about a cutesy rat that just wants to be a chef. And it's kind of like that. But then you're also in the world of rats in France where they're in sewers, they're eating garbage, and then they invade a kitchen to help like cook a meal for a fancy French restaurant. It's so disgusting. I know we had talked a while back, I think, about doing an episode about movies about food. And yeah. this, this movie... Would be good. Is so good. Like, there's that, I think, the best scene in the movie where the food critic yes. is is eating this thing and it brings him back to... You when know, he his, eats the ratatouille. Right, when he eats the ratatouille <laughs> and brings him back to his childhood. And it really instills the essence of what is so mm-hmm. great about good food. Yeah. It's beautiful in that way. I think it's... I wouldn't say it's underrated. It's... It's a gorgeous film, it's but like gorgeous, the Pixar, yeah. like the way it portrays Paris and like the food that's being cooked in the kitchen and the different seasonings and the passion of little Remy the rat is yeah. just a very good movie and I love it. I'm glad that you watched it and you enjoy it. <laughs> so Ratatouille, yes, finally. Thank you, God. And um, I also recently watched the 2006 version of The Omen. Have y'all seen that? I stayed away from it, honestly, 
Because I don't know, the original is such a classic that I, I just, I don't know how I feel about it. But was it any good? It was garbage. So it's so funny because it was released on 6-6 of 2006. Oh. <laughs> I had friends that got tattoos uh, that day. There were tattoo shops giving away free uh, 666 tattoos if you waited in line for Good them. Lord. <laughs> T- yeah, I would have done that. Um, so it stars like Leave Schreiber and Julia Stiles. Oh, and also uh, Mia Farrow. So you're thinking, wow, these are all like good actors. It was super shitty. The movie sucked. Mia Farrow carried this on her back because she plays like a satanic nanny, which I love. But that's the only good thing about it. Basically, they use the same script in this movie as the movie in 1978. It's the same exact script. So it's like, it's literally the same shit that happens just in a less exciting way. So there's really no reason to watch this. I'm so fascinated by films that do that. I, me and Brandon mm-hmm. did an episode on Psycho where they took the exact same, well, it was like sh- a shot for shot remake. Mm-hmm. Until it wasn't though. Right. That's how it was sold to us when we were watching it. Like the differences were interesting. And I was like, why didn't they do more stuff like that? There are like right. some hallucination sequences and stuff that are not in the original movie. So I, I would be interested to see this just to compare it to the original. Like you have the same script but how does yeah. a director make it better or worse? I don't know. I feel like that's a very interesting exercise in filmmaking. Like you're given the same script as someone else, but you do a poor job. That's what I was trying to figure out. Like, cause I'm watching it and I'm like the same thing's happening, but why does it suck more now? Yeah. I don't, <laughs> that's fascinating. Yeah. The original one is like legit creepy. This one's like, well, the real question is, like, is the child creepy? Not really. And I think that might have something to do with it. Like, he does what he's supposed to do, I think, but it doesn't work. I'm never scared of this kid. I mean, he just reminds me of all the other, like, shitty kids out there. He's not as creepy <laughs> <laughs> as, like, you know, Damien from 1978. But it's free on Hulu, so might as well, right? Something I watched, and I actually watched it last night, and I love this movie. It's called The Hitcher from 1986. Have y'all heard of this? The Hitcher? No. Oh, y'all. It is so good. So it's basically like, you know, you've got your desert layout, and there's a guy who, like, is either, like, in his, you know, like, maybe eight between the ages of, like, 18 and, like, 22 or something, And he's driving a, like, he's delivering a car. So he's driving through the desert and he picks up a hitchhiker. And the hitchhiker doesn't, like, look super creepy or anything. He just looks like a normal, like, you know, plain white guy. And they're driving and they pass up a car with its, like, its doors open. And the hitchhiker's like, oh, yeah, that's the guy that picked me up before. I cut his head off and then his arms and his legs. And the guy driving's like, what? <laughs> and then he takes a knife out and puts it to his throat. And then it becomes this, like, crazy fucking movie where, like, the kid that's driving, like, finds a way to push the hitchhiker out of the car. And then he's driving along the road after he pushes him out of the car. And he's like, I dodged the bullet. And then there's a station wagon pulling a boat. And there are, like, these little kids who are, like, you know, waving to the guy that's driving the car. And he's like, oh, hey. And then all of a sudden, like, behind this teddy bear is the hitchhiker. 
like, the family picked him up, and he's, like, trying to tell the family, like, that guy's crazy, he's gonna kill you, and they don't pay attention to him, or they don't really get what's happening, and a car clips the car of the guy that's, like, trying to, like, save them, and he loses them, and then he keeps driving, and he finds the, like, empty station wagon where it looks empty, and he goes to the window and screams and then throws up. Like, the guy, like, slaughtered the family. So it becomes this, like, cat and mouse game on the road. It's sort of like a road movie, but also, like, this, like, cat and mouse situation where there's, like, this teenage dude that's, like, trying to catch this guy that's killing everyone on the road, and the hitchhiker knows that he's doing that, so he's just fucking with them the whole time. It was, like, legit terrifying because it's just a homicidal maniac that is, like, killing for no reason and is getting off on it. Have you ever seen The Hitchhiker from the 1950s? No. I think you might dig it. It's, like, the first film noir directed by a woman by uh, Ida Lupino. Mm -hmm. And it's got kind of a similar vibe. It's just these two working-class guys who pick up a hitchhiker on the road and he just torments them and, like, kills a bunch of cops and, like... It's just this like throat hold thriller. It's only like an hour long too. It's very good. Okay. I'm writing it down. So it sounds like it's in a lineage with like a bunch of different thrillers about why you shouldn't pick up hitchhikers. Yeah. (laughs) But I still kind of (laughs) would. Don't pick up hitchhikers. I mean, I want to do it once. (laughs) John Waters has done a lot of uh, good PR for hitchhikers to make them seem like they'd be cool, kooky artists, you know? Or they could, I know, but then they could be this guy. Or they could, yeah, want to kill you. I don't know. There's nothing in between. It's one or the other. (laughs) You're right. right. It's either like artsy-fartsy or um, homicidal maniac. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, so those are like big films that are on my mind right now that I've watched lately. Um, But what about you, Brandon? You always have some some good shit. (laughs) I caught up with a couple very like bubblegum pop comedies from the 2000s. Ah, uh, I finally watched The House Bunny with Anna Ferris. Oh, please tell me you loved it, because I love that I movie. did not love it. Brandon? I can tell you that. Okay. <laughs> so, I like Anna Ferris. I think she's very funny. But I usually hate the movies she's in. Like, I think she's great, and I think she's in terrible films. And I wanted this to be an exception to that rule, and it really wasn't. Like, I'll say this. I didn't hate it. I think she's very funny in it. She plays this, like playboy bunny who gets too old to hang out in the hugh hefner mansion anymore so they kick her out and she has to find a new life but all she really knows is the playboy mansion so she sets up shop as the house mother for a sorority on a college campus and all the kids are like nerds and outcasts their sorority house is about to go under and she like turns it around and saves them and gives them all self-confidence and stuff and it's a funny premise and it's written by the people who also wrote Legally Blonde. So there's this kind of like feminist undertone to the writing where she's like a lot smarter than she appears. Like she plays like a Marilyn Monroe type, like dumb blonde who's like actually smart. and. But she says things like the eyes are the nipples of the face. <laughs> but, you know, if you think about what she's saying there, like it, it, there is a logic to it. And a lot of the like sort of stupid idioms she says pan out and end up being good advice for the girls after they think about it beyond it being stupid. But at the same time, it's also a happy Madison film. Mm -hmm. And if you think about the very worst, like most evil conservative subhuman bullshit that Adam Sandler movies 
have done over the years, this movie does all of them. Like it makes fun of prostitutes. It makes fun of trans women. It makes fun of like everybody who's not quote unquote normal. Right. Constantly throughout. So it's like two movies in one. It's like both this really smart, legally blonde type comedy that has this like unexpected feminist bent to it. And it's like the worst gross out bro humor, Adam Sandler bullshit at the same time. And it's like at war with itself back and forth the entire Mm. movie. I guess I never watched it through that lens. And that's probably it's you're 100% right. I don't think I just ever saw it that way. Maybe it's like just watching it through a modern lens. Like it's very much of its era. It's very like Paris Hilton 2000s. Which I love early Paris Hilton. Like I still like watch The Simple (laughs) Life. I follow like all these like Instagram accounts that are dedicated to early 2000s Paris Hilton. (laughs) But I know it's horrible. I mean, there's like a sort of nostalgia by now. There's like looking back at the fashion of stuff back yeah. then. Like it's like, oh, God, that's so tacky. But it's kind of cute. The problem yeah. is that like some of the morality and the it's humor gr- of yeah. that has that aged humor. terribly. I get where you're coming from with that. And I agree. Did I ever tell you that like when I went to see this in theaters, it was like packed and then halfway through the movie just me and my friend were the only people left (laughs) like everybody was leaving because they hated it so much i wish i could say it deserved a better fate than that like her performance is fantastic right uh the movie itself i have major problems with you know that's how i felt with um overboard which i I was gonna say recently like with anna faris right which is a remake of Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell and, and Goldie, Goldie Hawn. Hawn. And um, oh my God, the remake is horrible, but she's good in it. And it's frustrating. Yeah. That's like every Anna Ferris movie, except maybe Observe and Report. Like she's yeah. always funny and the material is always shit. I know. You're like, oh my God, like just someone give her a good script. Like she has talent, but just the roles she gets are mm-hmm. just not good. And she just quit the sitcom she's been on for the past like eight years. Mom so. with Allison Janney. Yeah, I love. So that she's show. finally free from the CBS limbo she's been in. So maybe she'll make something funny soon. Maybe I don't so. know. She has her own like podcast that I used to listen to like religiously, and she was so funny on it. But yeah, she's such a funny chick and doesn't get enough credit for her work. I agree with that part. <laughs> I also watched Sugar and Spice from two thousand one sweet this one i think i had seen before as like a blockbuster rental but i only had like the vaguest memory of it it was kind of a similar experience to the house bunny except i ended up liking it a lot it's a very short film it's like barely 80 minutes if that and it's about a group of cheerleaders who rob a bank because one of them becomes pregnant and has to like get an apartment and start paying her bills and if she finds out this like dream she had of like being an adult too early while she was still in high school costs money and uh it's like a harsher reality than she expected and it's basically because they're all like high school teenagers who don't know anything about the real world they're all basically just as ditzy as the house bunny like they all have this like bubbly personality that doesn't match how cynical the outside world is and all of that stuff is very funny the movie works at like an insanely fast pace where just like there's no lull, it's like completely entertaining the entire time, and it has this like almost surreal '60s bubblegum aesthetic. Like it's almost like watching like an Archie comic in real time. But 
it is so homophobic for no reason. Like, there are so many homophobic slurs in this film from left and right, even oh, though there God. are no gay characters. And then you think at first, like, oh, it's just the villain who's saying these things because it's kind of narrated by their nemesis. But then the girls themselves ask prisoners at a women's prison facility for help on how to plan this bank heist. And then they start making, like, lesbian prison rape jokes on top of like the other homophobic slurs that were already rattling around which is just crazy like especially for a movie that has this like high femme proto mean girls kind of aesthetic where it's like bubblegum pop art uh with a little bit of that heather's meanness undertone to it you would think like a gay audience is the exact thing they would be cultivating but because it's from the early 2000s where it was just like totally okay to say the f word in the middle of dialogue without any without giving it a second's pause like this movie is rated pg-13 and they work around cursing in every other aspect except for the slurs they like let those fly left and right because it's fine it's so crazy to me how like pretty much and there's like a small exception to it but like early 2000s comedy is just all bro humor and i don't think this one is bro humor though like i would put this more in line with heather's Jawbreaker. I used to get it confused with, um, but I'm a cheerleader. Drop Dead Gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah, like all those movies. It's got that sugary, femme, high school teen comedy aesthetic. And it just happens to be like ragingly homophobic for no reason whatsoever. And I still would rate it four stars and say it's great and I think everyone should watch it. Yeah. (laughs) But I just think like, yeah, it's just wild like how much that stings now. When probably if I saw this when I was 13 or 14 renting it from Blockbuster, I would not have batted an eye at that. Yeah. That would have registered as being like wrong to me in any way. I didn't pick up on any of that kind of stuff. But like, I feel like if I'd rewatch all this, like all those types of movies now, like House Bunny, (laughs) I'd probably have a different, you know, view on it. And it sucks being like a scold who like is affected by that. Like, especially for the House Bunny, because I feel like the bro marketed stuff, especially the Adam Sandler thing, what they want is for you to be morally offended. Like they find that shit hilarious when you are like put out by it. Right. And it sucks that I um, can only confirm that they are um, very good at it. They, they offended me and I didn't feel great about it. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. And at least it's like when I watch stuff like that, it's, it's a weird feeling where it's like, I'm enjoying it. But at the same time, like I recognize that this is wrong, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's a bizarre feeling, but I think as long as you can like recognize it for being like shitty for certain things like that, and hold it to that, and, like when you recommend it to people, be like, yeah, it's good, except all the homophobia that exists in it blows. Yeah, I think Sugar and Spice is a great movie. It's just also like a weirdly homophobic one for no reason. Yeah. For today's episode, we are gonna ease into the Halloween season. We're gonna talk about horror movies, uh, specifically zombie films, and I think I might get. A little more into what we were just talking about during that conversation too like just how the zombie movie in general has pilfered like haitian voodoo religion culture mm-hmm. for mass entertainment and how that might be more morally wrong than we've ever dealt with up until this point which at least is the intended central topic of the first movie we're going to talk about maybe we can expand from there but we're going to talk about like zombie movies throughout the ages as a way of getting into the Halloween season. Hmm. Yes. And all that's coming up to you right, right now. now. 
Voodoo culture is often portrayed negatively in the media as a form of witchcraft with sorcerers sticking pins into dolls, casting spells and grave robbing. And for many who practice voodoo, this damaging image still lingers. Hollywood is doing a so, <laughs> such a good job by um, making us look like the evil person. That's not what it's all about at all. It is not us. Voodoo is a religion where I light my candle and I pray to my spirit. Just like anybody goes to church where they light their own candles and pray to their saints and God. So the movie I wanted everyone to watch today is a new film. It's on Criterion Channel. It's called Zombie Child. Uh, it's the new release from Bertrand Bonello, whose last film was Nocturama, which we talked about on the podcast a couple years ago, whenever that came out. And this is a French film that is looking at the sort of colonialist history of the zombie film. It's like talking about how, especially from the 1940s, I Walked with a Zombie, until now, we've kind of like appropriated and sort of mutated zombie lore, like from Haitian voodoo religious rituals, how we've taken that and turned it into like mass pop entertainment. And Bonello kind of filters that through the history of France as a colonialist empire and its tendrils that have reached to Haiti as well. And it does so in this like really disconnected, kind of coldly academic way. But it also does it in a way that feels like a teen coming of age story that's very heartfelt. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say it's an accommodating film, but I don't want to say it's like alienating either. It's like kind of playing both sides of how art can be like sort of cold and distant and uh, welcoming and pop entertainment at the same time. It also splits its runtime in, in the same way. Like half the story is set in 1960s Haiti. It doesn't have a lot of dialogue in that half because the main character is this man who is zombified in a traditional Haitian ritual. He's like killed and brought back to life with this like powdered poison and his zombified body is made to work on sugarcane plantations as a slave. And after a while, he eats meat, which zombies are not supposed to be allowed to do, and basically regains his consciousness and tries to put his life back together over the course of several decades. The other half of the story is set in 2010's France, where we have this Haitian girl who was displaced by the earthquake a few years ago, um, and she is at this school for French legacy kids. Is the school established by Napoleon Bonaparte. It's a boarding school for girls. I think it's like all their parents or someone in their lineage has received the Legion of Honor as the official criteria for being there. She is among mostly white kids her age who are like much wealthier than her. And look at her as an outsider because she's this like Haitian kid and not, you know, from Paris. They didn't grow up knowing her. But she finds a small clique of girls. They're these like literary nerds these like poetry and rap enthusiasts oh god <laughs> uh, who like pull her into their little circle and the way the story plays out is there's a ceremony at the end that is to honor her ancestor who is the zombie we've been watching in the 1960s half and one of the girls breaks off from the clique to go to this Haitian girl's aunt and have her perform a ceremony to fix her broken heart. It's this like frivolous teenage love thing 
that the aunt has to miss out on the ceremony for her ancestor to perform for this white child. And basically the kid throws so much money in this poor woman's face. She like works four different jobs and is barely holding this household together. So she can't say no to this like stack of cash that this privileged child brings in her apartment. And in like performing the ceremony for this kid to fix her broken heart, quote unquote, it brings a bunch of destruction and death into the film. At the boarding school, everyone is scared of the Haitian zombie outsider girl. And the movie's sort of like pushing you into believing this like traditional horror trope about how she has zombie blood and will therefore become a monster and hurt someone. But really what happens over the time is that the white kids privilege and their aestheticized relationship with zombie lore because of zombie movies, that colonialist like pilfering is actually what brings the damage and the horror into the film. And then just kind of stops abruptly uh, without giving you like a very violent payoff the way like a horror movie usually would. And I think it's an interesting balance of like, it both feels like a Michael Haneke type movie where there's like in class lectures about France's like colonialist past and about, like the failures of the French revolution, they're all explained like very openly in the text. And then there's also this like sort of Celine Sciamma, like coming of age story about this girl sort of like finding her footing, reminding me a little bit of girlhood or like water lilies or something like that. So it's very like rooted in modern French cinema in the modern part. And then the sixties uh, Haitian part is kind of undoing the way we usually see zombies on the screen. So, I think the movie is doing a lot, even though it is like kind of quiet and understated. I guess just up front, I want to know if it was interesting to you in any way, because I could also see it being a total bore. It was not a bore for me. I think what I really, really appreciated about this film was its themes were very loose, where, you know, it was about colonization. It was about cultural appropriation, racism, but none of it was very clear. It was all very kind of loose. And the structure of the film too, like you had talked about, where the beginning feels very kind of rigid and cold. And then the last like 20, 30 minutes is like insane in a very like entertaining way. I almost felt like a different film. And so part of it feels like an intellectual exercise but then later on, it feels like something more from the gut, like more visceral. And meanwhile, you have all these sort of vague ideas, but it never really makes it clear exactly what it's trying to say. But I appreciated that, that it was kind of like open to your own interpretation. Yeah, there were times where I thought the film was kind of disjointed, going back and forth to like France to Haiti in these two different time frames, but I think that's more so an issue that I have with myself that I, I sometimes I can't keep up well, when movies do that. I don't think the movie nailed it exactly. Like I think it was trying to juggle too mm-hmm. many like it really had three separate storylines going on and it was juggling a lot. And I don't know if it perfectly executed everything, but I do think it was interesting. Yeah. It held I think my that interest. There was like Yeah, like I was never really disinterested in it. There were times where I feel like there was something where, you know, in my mind was like, wow, that's something to kind of explore a little bit more. But then it went to something else. And then I kind of forgot about it. You know what I mean? Like it's, there's so many little things I think 
that can have different meaning and, so, and things that do need to be looked at a little further. So I, I really think I probably have to watch this again at, at least another time to kind of get the full impact of it. I think I did kind of miss a lot just because I had a hard time keeping up with it a little bit. Um, but I liked it a lot. I especially liked that demon that popped up in the end that was really like flamboyant and fun. Yeah. <laughs> the way that that character, the demon character was, I didn't really expect. Like I said, the last 20 minutes feels like a hallucinogenic, like a different film in a good way. It's like, you're not expecting yeah. it. Yeah. I thought it was like a kind of fun. Exci- I don't know. Exciting in a weird, in a weird way. But I did like the creepiest part in this whole damn movie was when all these like girls were like kind of mumbling the lyrics to this rap song that they like know nothing about. It was so f- creepy to I me. It was scene. like, you know, just a bunch of white girls like talking about like, you know, <laughs> black problems and the way that they're like in silence, just staring at each other and repeating the lyrics in this like very low chant way, almost like they were trying to summon something. <laughs> it's, it's very bizarre. That did remind me of the scene from Girlhood with, you know, Rihanna. And Rihanna gets name checked in this movie a lot too. So I don't think that was entirely Yeah, I like the, um, where it's like, what's your favorite Rihanna song? <laughs> Diamonds. <laughs> I'm like, good one, girl. It's a good one. And that probably means something. I, I, I'm like, you know, maybe reviewing the lyrics of Diamonds and seeing what that can pull into, you know, what this movie's about. <laughs> and I think there is something to that scene where the kids are all rapping they are sort of like performing this like appropriated culture. But when she is alone and she listens to rap music by herself and she sort of does this beautiful like dancing movement with her uh, shoulders, there's something like really private and like heartfelt about that, which is like very different in contrast to the other ritual where they all rap together in a circle. Right. And I think it's kind of the same as the Haitian voodoo rituals we see as well like Like, you're using something special to a culture for like your own selfish needs exactly yeah absolutely i think the core of the movie is if you track how much harm the two main teenagers do the movie keeps egging you on to expect this zombie grandchild to commit (laughs) a violent act right and everyone's like kind of scared of her for that reason And nothing ever comes of it, which can feel like kind of a letdown because we're sort of trained to expect that act of violence. But then if you track what the white girl does throwing money around and like inserting her into these rituals where she has no place because she got her heart broken by a a boy, then you sort of see like how much damage that can do. More damage than a zombie could have done. (laughs) Yeah, I think there's like a uh, there's a contrast between what those two girls stories like what their two effects on the people around them are yeah if you're trying to track what it's trying to say i think that's pretty solid i think it's interesting too that it seems like the film should be about melissa's story but that's when you think about the actual like screen time like her and fanny's story are kind of given equal weight in the film which i thought was interesting like like fanny has her own thing going on you know, with the whole, again, it's clearly about cultural appropriation and how that leads to like the death of the culture. Like it literally leads to the death of Melissa's aunt. But I thought that was an interesting choice to like have these three different stories and give them all equal weight. Ultimately, that's what 
for me, made it interesting and also made it feel maybe a little uneven. At least they all relate back to Melissa in some way. Like the zombie half in the 60s and 70s, that's harder to track how it's related to her until maybe halfway into the film. Mm -hmm. The white girl is a lot easier to track. Like she inserts herself into this person's life increasingly so until she's like sitting in Melissa's childhood bedroom, basically ruining her life for her own satisfaction. You know, Mm -hmm. it does all relate back to Melissa, but you know, she's not on the screen when the other characters are taken over, even though they do have a direct effect on her life. Just again, it goes to that loose sort of narrative, the free flowing narrative that I do appreciate about this movie. Well, did this make y'all think any differently about the zombie movie? Because this is not the typical, you know, George Romero style right. of like right. eat brains. Which are the zombie movies I don't care for. That's where I actually felt a little self-conscious. Like after watching this one and then Serpent in the Rainbow, which we'll get to later. Yeah. You know, I picked 28 Days Later, which Serpent in the Rainbow and Zombie Child definitely have a respect for Haitian voodoo culture and what a zombie actually means in that culture. Whereas like Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, and 28 Days Later, that idea of the zombie is much more the Americanized, not really revering any sort of idea of like Haitian culture. Just the idea of a zombie as like a brain did, or like it's right. a virus or whatever. So in that way, like this film and Serpent, like, definitely respect the culture more than the one I picked. So I I felt a little conscious about that after watching these two. But to be fair to you, we had originally said as a topic, like what is like a smart zombie movie? Yeah. Right. And I don't think you were incorrect in what you picked. And I think that's just going to change the conversation. It's not what is a smart, entertaining zombie movie to us. It's going to be more like what is the zombie diaspora like how is this idea spread out and become diluted and changed into a new thing that has nothing to do with its original purpose Mm -hmm. which doesn't make 28 days later any lesser but i think this kind of corrective for zombie child to go back and examine that and see how far it's come from its original purpose i think is worthwhile yeah and this felt like a reclaiming of the actual history and heritage of like what it means to be a zombie it's like a different feeling where like, you know, when you look at the Romero zombie, you could care less, right? These are just monsters that need to die so that you can survive and get past them. Whereas in these Haitian zombie films, Zombie Child and Serpent in the Rainbow, you have a lot of empathy for the zombie because it's a, you know, it's a human being who is being used and abused Well, and I think the George Romero thing is interesting, though, because he takes it to a a very American capitalist critique where the consumers are zombies. Like, there's usually Mm -hmm. some political metaphor at play, and it's clever in its own way, but it's not necessarily like revering the tradition from where it came from. It's morphing it into something different that makes it like uniquely American. And I think it's worth noting, too, we talked a lot about the teen girl drama in the film purposefully because the main character is like a teen girl. But I think the flashbacks where the zombies are working the sugarcane plantations in a field 
and just moaning and falling over and sort of like half-heartedly hacking at the sugar cane with like machetes and like basically crying like why me what did i do to deserve this that shit's horrifying in a completely different way than like this heartbreaking horror versus like you're not scared of them you're scared for them well and it's more based in like empathy and humanity Mm -hmm. like zombies and a george romero film don't even feel like human you don't have that connection they're just monsters but yeah in this film like you said when they're just hacking away it it brings you i don't know some empathetic connection with like slavery and just being a a mindless worker yeah it's horrifying in a different way of the imagination ah! lies the ultimate nightmare. Don't let them bury me. I'm not dead. So there's been a lot of zombie movies over the years, decades, half a century. So it would be unlikely that Zombie Child would be the first one to dial the clock back before the George Romero takeover. Brittany brought up a movie from the 80s that also tried to bring the zombie movie back to its Haitian roots. Yes. My choice for this episode was The Serpent and the Rainbow from 1988, which is a Wes Craven film. And we recently went over our um, love for all the Freddy movies and everything like that. And it was like a few episodes ago. So Wes Craven is back with this. So it's kind of based on this novel from um, an anthropologist named Wade Davis. So Wade Davis, he was also like not only an an anthropologist, but he was an ethnobotanist and he was like studying plants and their uses for medicine. And he wrote this book called The Serpent and the Rainbow about his experience um, when he was in Haiti dealing with Haitian voodoo and the process of how like Haitian zombies were created. Um, And he really talks about the case with this individual named Clervius uh, Narcisse. And he was a Haitian zombie. And I want to say this might have been the same. I don't, I know like the names might not have been the same, but I want to say the narcissist guy, this all happened in like 1962 in real life. So it kind of made me think that that character of the zombie grandfather in Zombie Child might have been him. It is. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Just making sure I didn't screw that up <laughs> in my mind. But yeah, so. Basically, he took this sort of powder, like like a zombie powder, and it's made with like pieces of like crushed bones from a corpse and like the poison from a puffer fish and a bunch of other ingredients. And it's said to, you know, bring back those from the dead and people would dig them up and continuously give them this drug to keep them washed of their memory in this like hallucinatory state of mind so they can just keep working on sugarcane fields at these plantations. So they were continuously like given this powder. And he was one where he stopped taking the powder for whatever reason. Like he, whoever was running the plantation like either died or something like that. So he wasn't getting this like constant dose of it. And he started to come to his, his mind and found his family and all that good stuff. So 
this film, The Serpent and the, the Rainbow, is kind of like loosely based on like Wade Davis's experience where there is a Haitian man and his name's Christophe in this film. And he dies and is kind of buried alive, I guess. Where, he, you know, right in the beginning, he's he's being buried and you can see like a tear coming from his eye as he goes in the ground, which is like fucking terrifying. And um, the doctor, who is based off of like Wade Davis, Dr. Allen, who is an anthropologist. And basically, um, Dr. Allen is going to Haiti to get a sample of this like zombie powder to bring back to the United States for big pharma to take and attempt to like use it to cure like, you know, or save like hundreds of thousands of lives in America, something crazy like that. So yeah, so Dr. Allen kind of dabbles into this world of Haitian zombies that he has like no business in. (laughs) And essentially just a bunch of crap goes down where he's kind of like engulfed in that world, trying to get this powder to bring back to the U.S. And there is like a Haitian witch doctor who is like after Dr. Allen and is like terrorizing him. And eventually Dr. Allen gets the zombie powder like blown on him. (laughs) And I think like that half of the movie, like post zombie powder is where this movie kind of for me becomes more like a Wes Craven film where in the beginning it's like, I don't know. It's kind of weird. It kind of feels like a, weird docudrama in a weird way and then all of a sudden like once Dr. Allen gets zombified it becomes very like Wes Craven and it gets like a little silly and fun. The dream logic kicks in. And that part of the film where you're put in the point of view of Dr. Allen where you're basically being zombified where your body doesn't move but you're completely aware of everything going on. So essentially, like, he kind of figures out that what this powder does is it makes you appear dead, except, like, this certain part of your brain is still functioning, where you can still feel, you're still aware, you can hear, you can see, you can smell, you just don't appear, like, you don't have any vitals or anything like that. So he's, like, pronounced dead, and he's, like, watching them pronounce him dead, and he can't speak up, and then he's put in the ground, and you're in his, like, point of view. So it's like you're being buried alive. And homeboy throws in a tarantula with him and is like, hey, here you go. Somebody to keep you company while you're buried alive. And you just go in this box and then the, the whole film goes into, like, complete darkness. And, like, you can feel him wake up where he, the you know, the drug starts, the zombie powder drug starts to wear off and, like, He's screaming and, you know, there's like a creepy crawly tarantula in the coffin. Um, and Christoph actually unburies him. And then all the Wes Craven stuff starts to happen. The sort of mystical components of this like zombie voodoo or Haitian voodoo kind of comes out a little later on in the end. Yeah, it's kind of the same thing as Zombie Child where you're being enslaved by this powder. Right. But in this case, you're being enslaved to become this like dream demon. Like he sends his zombified slaves into other people's dreams to torment them and get right. them to act the way he wants to. Right. So it's kind of mixing a little bit of like that Wes Craven surrealism in with like the traditional lore. I liked this movie. 
I remember seeing it like years ago and not really getting it. Like I remember like when I first watched this when I was like way younger, I was like bored by it because like the beginning, like unless you're highly interested in like the content, the beginning kind of feels like a little sleepy, but watching it again, like recently I, I did like it from beginning to end. I, re- I really liked it again. I feel like it treats voodoo with like a certain amount of respect or like it's at least like, interested in Haiti in voodoo in the religion and you know the fact that it was shot there like it feels very authentic too you get a a real vibe of like what the island is like and the people and the culture and I really appreciate that level of respect for it and then like you said the the last like third of the movie goes into your West Craven horror stuff so I liked the respect for the culture and also the political intrigue. Cause you know, like there's this political revolution going on. Right. The Haitian revolution. Right. When they're on the Island and like, I felt like it was actually for Wes Craven, a very smart picture about politics and religion. And then you also get like these crazy special effects. There was some really like horrific uh, images in here. Like, I don't, I thought it it was very good. I liked it. I'm of two minds about it. Like Brittany, when I watched this a few years ago, I was bored by it. And this watch, I definitely was not. I think it's it struck me a lot more this time. But I feel like it does a lot of groundwork to make excuses for that final third. It talks about how this white man's coming in from America to learn, basically to apply science to magic is the way they put it, to like learn how this powder functions and then take that knowledge back to America and characters around him call him out for it. It's like, yeah, but if you fuck this up, my people get hurt is the way they put it. So that's interesting. And I think the movie in the first third or so is like really putting its roots in Haiti and like establishing him as this like sort of outsider who's blundering into this thing. He doesn't believe the local doctors like warnings and he's working for this big evil tech company called like BioCorp Boston or something like that. <laughs> the most evil tech company name you could think of. Yeah, it sounds like a RoboCop like type <laughs> facility. It does. And then when that last third kicks in, the movie gets so wildly imaginative and it's like visual language once it becomes like surreal dream logic that it almost feels like, oh, this is why you were interested in the material. Like... There's that scene where he gets buried alive in the coffin in his dream before it happens in real life. Right. Where he just is in a room where the window is the crucifix slat in the coffin where he can look out of the grave. And then the room like shrinks down to actual coffin size and then fills with blood. And then later on, there's like all these hands reaching out of the wall. It's like this hellish vision where like, you can't tell what direction is up or down and like anything can come from any direction. And Wes Craven is so good at that visual surrealism on the screen. Like he is the expert at it even. Mm -hmm. And it's really cool to watch him do that stuff outside of the nightmare series. Cause that's mostly where he got to apply that expertise, but it also kind of felt a little, I don't want to say disrespectful, but like a little like the Haitian stuff, almost feels like an excuse for him to play around with that. 
if that makes any sense. I don't know how invested the movie actually is in the Haitian background so much as it feels like an opportunity for those images, which are all great and fantastic and exciting. But I don't know. Like, he filmed it in Haiti. That's a good point. I mean, like, he brought, like, money to the actual, like, local economy. He could have filmed it in some other place. And You're right. So it was, like, it feels authentic in that way. Like, no, we actually went down to Haiti. We filmed the people in the place and, like, Maybe there was like an exploitation. The Haiti that but. he used almost seemed like too calm for Haiti being like I doubt that Haiti was like that during the revolution. You know what I'm saying? Like I kind of want it to be grittier. Well no, apparently like they filmed as much as they could and then they actually were told like we can no longer protect you in this oh, political environment. And they had to leave and then I think they had to film they had to go to some other country nearby to finish okay. filming. So like they went down into the political volatile climate and then wow. they were like in the thick of it and they had to leave for their own safety. So I, I don't know. I got that like tension in the movie. It felt real to me. But I guess my question is how much of that imagery that like Nightmare in Elm Street influence has anything to do with Haitian culture and Haitian iconography. Probably like a small percentage of it. <laughs> yeah. If you listen to Haitian people talk about like zombie lore and like that ritual and like other voodoo rituals, they're kind of, I don't know. I don't want to say upset, but like they're like off put by how demonic and like scary it, it is in every version of Hollywood filmmaking that represents it. But do you think Zombie Child did a better job at that? Because isn't that horrific in its own way, the way that film ends? I think it's more convincing that what is on screen in that movie is actually rooted in Haitian lore. And I think that if you think about how the violence is brought out, like the fact that the appropriation of the culture is what causes the violence that's a lot different than like a demon being summoned or like hands reaching out of the wall or stuff like that. You know what I'm saying? Like it feels like it did its homework and then actually depicted that research. Whereas it feels like the serpent in the rainbow did its homework and then used that as like a base level excuse to do this like beautiful horror effects, really gorgeous practical effects. And I don't want to like, downplay like how cool that stuff is because it is awesome love the hands really cool yeah but it is like a little bit like this is kind of the exact same thing zombie child is critiquing even though it is doing a little bit of the same like research well i wonder if it's because the serpent and the rainbow kind of got a lot of its material from that novel that was like written by that white anthropologist you know what I mean? Like, it seems like it's more from, like, that perspective than the actual culture itself. And there is a critique about that in the movie, too, is, like, yeah. he is pilfering yeah. knowledge to, like, reappropriate it and use it for a different purpose elsewhere. Like, that is part of the material. And I don't want to say the movie's not interested in that, but it is, like, it, it feels like it gets to a certain point in the third act where, like, all bets are off. Right. And it sort of just, like, walks away from having to do any more like authenticity work and just gets to go bug nuts. I get that. Like it's like using this like part of a culture that's almost sacred 
and using it to spook Americans. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But again, it's like, at least it has some sense of history. Whereas Mm -hmm. if we're going to talk about like the George Romero and the 28 Days Later, it's totally removed from any sense of like what zombieism actually is. So Serpent in the Rainbow feels like a nice little middle ground where it respects, you know, it has a sense of history, but also is like just using it to have some fun. And then where we are now is um, totally, you know, forgetting about the history of zombies. Yeah. By the time you get to the walking dead, it's more like right wing apocalypse fantasies it's more about like how tough like a post-apocalyptic world totally yeah Yeah, where you're like doomsday prepper like almost (laughs) looking forward to it to like prove how tough you are so yeah it's become more and more removed and i i do think the movie is more respectful than other examples and i don't even want to say it's like a good or bad binary like oh this movie's bad for doing this but i do think it like lets go of that at a certain point and just goes wild with the imagery. Totally. Mm -hmm. The imagery is really cool. It's a great payoff, but you know, especially after watching zombie child first and then revisiting this, you know, you can't help but think about the moral implications of that. And it can be a gray area. It doesn't have to be a black or white. This is good or bad. I think like, especially what this does that like zombie child was different with is like, there's a lot of symbolism in zombie child. Like, you know, kind of everything meant something where I didn't really feel that so much in this movie. It just felt like you were in the moment. And like, you know, like there wasn't a lot of like, you know, oh, this character's doing this, which represents this or, you know, this part in history. I didn't feel like that. It just felt like you were just watching something play out. It just felt like Wes Craven was super into voodoo for a while. And he wrote a script about voodoo and, he made a movie about it and then he moved on. I don't know. I get the sense it was coming from a decent place. Yeah, I agree. And I like how the film, and I might be wrong, but I don't think it made Dr. Allen look too much like a hero. Because it's sort of like, you know, a lot of everything that was kind of happening to him happened because he was doing something he shouldn't have even dabbled in in the first place. And he comes in with this like American cowboy attitude where he like disregards all local knowledge about stuff because he feels like he is like more educated than the local people. Right. Especially like the doctor that he is teaming up with when he first gets there. He like assumes that she's trying to scam his like company he's working for and like doesn't believe anything he's seeing until it's like way too late and he's like a major part of it. Right. So yeah, I, I think the movie is critical of him and his point of view. It just felt like more alive when it was doing the Elm Street shit, but like a voodoo flavored version of it. I, I don't know if that's just me because I was more excited by that. <laughs> the special effects were really good. Like there's some very nightmarish sequences in the movie. I thought the music was good too. Like it was a very well-made film. Wes Craven knows how to make a good movie. He knows how to scare you. And this is like a scary, good movie with great effects and good performances. And I I dug it. I agree with all that. I just think this episode, the way that these three movies speak to each other, I just think you can't talk about it without like investigating how it's playing with that, that imagery, you know? It's true. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good segue into the other one because it becomes even further removed from Haitian voodoo. It was James's pick. Yeah. So I picked, 28 days later, when you asked me for like a smart zombie film, 
originally I wanted to go with like Dawn of the Dead or something, but that felt like trite. Like that's the old school zombie picture. Like 28 Days Later to me represents the new breed of what a zombie movie can be like. And really the only thing that was going through my head was like, okay, it's a smart zombie movie because they made the zombies run fast. You know, and like I hadn't seen it in a super long time, but I just knew that one fact that like it sort of reinvigorated the zombie genre. You know, instead of having the slow plotting zombies, they're like very fast and... They're almost like demonic, <laughs> like the way they hiss like a vampire. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like this movie did reinvigorate the genre. For sure. Like The Walking Dead was like when we all got tired of it. Yeah. But this was the start of that wave. This and um, the Dawn of the Dead remake. I, I can't remember which one came first, but the two of them together sort of like reinvigorated interest in the genre. And by the time The Walking Dead came over, that wave was over. Well, it's a very simple story. You know, in the beginning, you have these group of like animal rights activists that free these chimpanzees from their cages, but they're infected with this disease called rage. And then... You have the main character who is a bicycle courier who wakes up in a hospital and everyone's gone. There's so many like great scenes in the beginning of just Britain just isolated, like no one's there. It's desolation. And he's just walking around wondering what the hell happened. And just like any great apocalyptic movie, he finds a group of people and they sort of form a family and they're trying to outrun these hyperconnect zombies. And eventually they end up on this military base. And then they find out the military is worse than the zombies. And it's this obvious like political statement. What's the statement? That's just sort of human nature, I guess. The zombies are really no different than what non-zombie humans do to one another. That sort of thing. That human beings are the ultimate monster. Yeah, it's a it's a little on the nose, but it works. And I think what really works for this film, watching it again for me, is like, you know, it was shot on a very low budget on like digital cameras. And it's very grainy and gritty and it feels like a documentary. And that is so effective. There's something about it that just feels very real. And same... <laughs> Same thing with, like, the zombies. Like, the zombies feel, like, scary for the first time in a long time. So there's a lot of elements in this movie that really did, at the time, reinvigorate this zombie genre. Now, I think in our larger conversation, I don't know if this was a step forward or a step back. But overall, like, watching this movie again, it's a great fucking movie. It has heart. To me, like, you really feel when these, like, central characters are forming a family and when stuff happens to them, you feel it. And then the climax in this, like, military compound is very thrilling. And again, it feels like a documentary. And just, it still feels really fresh. Me, personally, I really enjoyed watching this again. It had been a very long time. So I, I don't know, what, what did y'all think of... 28 Days Later. It reminded me a little bit of that, like, um, you wouldn't steal this movie vibe. <laughs> where I just felt like I was, like, chugging a Red Bull and, like, you know, bouncing my head up and down a little bit. Where it's, like, 
a lot of the scenes were very like night, you know, early two thousands, like kind of a dark club scene where some of the shots were like slanted to look really cool. It's shot on that early two thousands <laughs> digi too, which yeah. I watched this a lot on like shitty televisions in college because this movie meant a lot to me in the early 2000s. Oh. I used to rewatch it a lot over oh. and over again. <laughs> what? But I didn't see it in the theater, so I, I never really caught on to just how grainy and like low quality that image is until rewatching it now. It's fun though. I, I yeah, love that. I love that about it. So I watched, I remember watching this when it did come out in theaters and then I watched it again with my grandparents because they had HBO. And that's where, like, I was obsessed with that granddaddy song, the AM 180, that was part of the soundtrack. In the grocery yeah, the store? Down, 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 oh, I love that down. scene. I love that grocery store scene. It's so happy. Like, I, I, I like that, too. It's sort of like a grocery store fantasy as well, where it's like, this is all yours. You can take what you want, except all the fruit's rotten. I couldn't help but get some, like, coronavirus vibes. That's what I want to talk from about. From watching this, yes. like... It connected with me so much on that level. Like, oh my God, we're living this now. Like this feels of the moment. That's exactly what I want to talk about. I think that you're asking, is this a step forward or a step back for the genre? Especially in terms of like how it relates to zombie lore and voodoo. I think this is a huge step forward. It is not explicitly a zombie movie. This is a virus outbreak film that uses what we recognize as zombie iconography. Like it's using the George Romero zombie and then removing that word and that connotation from it. So it's like even more removed from the Haitian roots, but to the point where it's like no longer connected to it at all. So it doesn't have to comment on that, that history, you know, this is a movie about a health pandemic (laughs) and watching it right now. It's, remarkable how dead on it is with like the current climate. The movie opens with grainy news footage of police brutality. It's like policemen beating people in the street. And then it cuts to this like chimpanzee who's strapped to a table as like a science experiment forced to watch that brutality footage. And that's what infects its brain. Like it gets like a rage virus from being fed like the evil violence of the world and honestly that reminded me so much of just like being stuck on twitter at my house uh (laughs) watching all this police brutality and like uh especially against the protesters over the past few months like i resonated with that and then you cut from that to killian murphy waking up in the hospital 28 days after the outbreak and roaming the streets of london and there's no one around there's just like trash blowing and the empty like places that would normally be filled with like thousands of people going to and from work Mm -hmm. or doing whatever. And all of us work downtown in some capacity Mm -hmm. on and off. Uh, I'm I'm there two or three days a week right now. And especially like early in March when the lockdown started, that's exactly what the vibe felt like. Every time I went downtown is like these empty spaces that are normally filled with people. And I was just like, what am I doing in this ghost town? Just like living as if life is normal even just going to that downtown Rouse's uh, when I need like water or something while I'm at my job, it just feels totally eerie. And the movie nails that. And then by the time you get to the ending in the military complex where they take over that castle, <laughs> more or less, it feels like an old dark house kind of ending to the film. It's a bunch of like brutish, immature boys playing military, which is another storyline from coronavirus where we have. It's the police force. <laughs> 
Well, there's that, and there's also the right wing fascists who are crossing state uh, lines with guns to right. play military and like control, quote unquote, the Antifa violence. Yeah. So this movie meant a lot to me in college in the early 2000s on like an aesthetic level. And I was just kind of shocked by watching it now how much it means to me on like a I am actually living this pandemic oh, that it's depicting level. Um, so it has an authenticity to it that has nothing to do with voodoo rituals or I don't even think they say the word zombies in the movie. Mm-hmm. Like it feels so separate from that, even though it's drawing directly from that iconography and right. we recognize the zombies without it having to say the word. It's almost like I forget that it's a zombie movie. It just feels like a post-apocalyptic movie. I don't know the exact line of dialogue, but there was one line that like I had to pause it because it was so on point with, you know, 2020, I, something along the lines of like, give up on making plans. Oh, God. All you can do is survive. And like, that's what life feels like now. Like plans are sort of out the window. All we're focused on is just like surviving the next day to the next. But then later on in the film, you realize it's about people. It's connecting with people. And that's what really like got to me with this film is especially in that middle section where they're forming this family this like ragtag family, you realize that like human connection is the way out of despair in these apocalyptic situations. And that just like resonated with me so much. And that's why it's so smart for Killian Murphy to not have been around for the outbreak because he is horrified by how much people have lost that so quickly. Like just in a month's time, he has all these people who are like, I would shoot you in a second if you were infected. And I wouldn't think anything about it. And like, even as he falls in love with this woman and becomes like her closest friend and basically her entire family, just himself, she still has that attitude. And he's like, that's not how we are. Like we're supposed to have this like solidarity and like help each other. And that, that is the core of the movie is like trying to keep that in mind. And it's happening now. Everyone's forgetting their humanity. <laughs> yeah. Well, could you imagine like waking up out of a coma right now? Like say you went into a coma in like January and you woke I up I was right like now. fascinated with these stories of like people who were going on like their remote island trips and they were like totally disconnected from like, you know, social media and stuff. And then they came back like two months into this like pandemic and we're like, what the fuck's happening? And that happened a lot, like, so um, it reminded me a lot of, like, those particular individuals, like, type stories. I'm like, yep, that is so 28 days later. <laughs> but, I mean, I feel like there's some deep truth in that. We're like, the only way we're going to survive any of this pandemic stuff is, like, doing exactly what we're doing right now. Like, being with friends and people we care about, that's it. That's the only thing that's going to get us through. Not just getting a bunch of like, you know, semi-automatic weapons. And no, like not out of fear and not just like trying to survive. <laughs> yeah. It's like, no, we, we need people. Yeah. And not institutions. Like they keep wanting to call the cops or like looking for the military or the government to solve the problem. And really, it's just more about them taking care of each other until it's over. Right. And like that middle stretch where they're traveling from the city to the military outpost is like the most functional and well off they are the entire time. Mm-hmm. You can't look to like institutions of power to save you from this because they will just 
milk you for all you're worth and discard the husk, right. <laughs> which is something that we've seen play out over so many times mm-hmm. in the past few months. So yeah, this movie, I thought I had a grasp on everything it could mean and everything it was doing. And it still surprised me like how well it's aged and almost prophetically. So, and like how much it's disconnected itself from other zombie lineage so where it it doesn't really have anything to do with it anymore like it's a whole other separate narrative that has its own standing i I think it's also worth noting it's written by alex garland who you know did annihilation and ex machina and devs and a bunch of other great stuff from then and now he's just kind of a smart dude and makes good genre movies well and zombie movies it can be both like i love the ones that have a sense of history and sense of culture but also, that idea is so, it applies to so many situations that we're currently living through, whether it's like consumerism or this pandemic. So it's broadened to mean a lot. It can represent so many things at this point. And like the idea of zombies has broadened to a like crazy degree. I, I like it. I dig it. I don't think one is better than the other. I don't even think saying like these are the smart zombie movies denigrates other things either because we just watched Dead Alive for our great movie endings episode a few weeks back and that one is dumb as shit and it's <laughs> and it's really fun and great hell. yeah right I'm like what was it about like zombies that I just didn't care for and I really think I just don't like any of the George Romero <laughs> zombie movies except for like um, Return of the Living Dead. And that's just because it's a fun 80s movie. I'm not particularly interested in George Romero either. And I know that is a blasphemous statement. I know. Like I, I feel fandom. guilty saying I will it. say Monkey Shines is a George Romero film and it's fantastic. <laughs> You're right. It is good. And I think the idea of Dawn of the Dead, like having the zombies flock to the mall is very clever for its time. You know, so I don't know. He, he has some clever ideas with zombies, it might just be like that we've seen so many people copy what he did I to think the point where it the Walking just Dead just it. ruined it for us. <laughs> the Walking Dead ruined it all. <laughs> yeah, we're tired. I mean, honestly, I, I've heard so many good things about Train to Busan, the Korean zombie movie. Yes, from years ago. I haven't watched that either. I haven't watched it because I'm just so fucking tired. <laughs> like, right. In 2020, what do you think you could do to reinvigorate the zombie genre again? Because, you know, 28 Days Later was so long ago. Like, what do what do you do now? What if you make only zombies kids? Like, only kids could get it. That's kind of like Cooties. It's, it's been done. Damn it. What? Cooties? Yeah, there's a movie called Cooties, yeah, from a few <laughs> years ago. Oh, my God. Because, like, I find myself more scared of kids than usual because they are, like, you know, they all have the damn coronavirus. <laughs> You'd like that movie. It's fun. Cooties. The kids, the kids uh... There's a lot of great shots of kids playing on the playground and you can't tell which ones have been infected yet because <laughs> the kids are like so gross and such little monsters like in real life that uh, it's hard to tell which ones are zombies. It's pretty great. That sounds really great. Okay. Um, I mean, I saw one this year called Blood Quantum, which was interesting. Like it's set in Canada on an indigenous reserve mm-hmm. and the indigenous people are immune to the zombie virus so it's like all these white people like looking for safety at the reservation 
and being rejected and like uh, oh, wow. causing problems. And like that metaphor, it speaks to like how there's new territory for the zombie metaphor to like be applied to like different topics. Like there's still room for new ideas there. Mm-hmm. But then the movie does the same sort of like Romero style payoff that you kind of expect from the genre. And as interesting as the ideas were, I wasn't that excited by the violence or like where it went because I kind of expected it. Mm-hmm. So if you're asking me like what can someone do to reinvigorate the zombie genre the same way that 28 Days Later did, it would have to come up with something so new I can't even conceive of it. <laughs> kind of like the fast zombies. Like it has to so rearrange the idea of the monster and change the rules of it to the point where we wouldn't even recognize it as a zombie anymore, which is kind of what makes the movie good. What if it was like, you couldn't tell who was a zombie or not. Like they still function like a human being. That sounds like uh invasion of the body snatchers. And there's like five of those movies. God, I'm trying. Okay. I'll stop thinking. <laughs> I'm sorry to shoot you down. I was, I was thinking of like zombies as sort of a metaphor for depression. Again, where, oh, you, where you can't tell that someone's a zombie, but there's some internal, it's like an internal zombie, not any outward sign. You know, I feel like there's, what's cool about the zombie genre is there's ways to play with it and it can evolve over time and it can like reflect whatever the social issues are at a given moment. So I don't know. I feel like there will be cool cutting edge zombie movies coming forward that, like Brandon said, like we just can't conceive of because they're just so cutting edge that we're not smart enough to think of it. I don't think metaphor is enough. I think that thematic variation has mm-hmm. been done so often that you have to like rethink it entirely. And maybe that's why Zombie Child excited me because it sort of burned the whole enterprise to the ground and started from the beginning again. Yeah. Which I found that more interesting than just like playing around with like, what if zombies could be like a relationship that lasted too long or things like that, which I've seen in a couple movies too. Mm-hmm. I think zombie child does a good job of like reinvigorating the genre, but sort of in a back to basics kind of way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well on next week's episode, Boomer is making me watch a movie called a tale of two sisters, which is on shutter and I know oh. nothing else about it. So your guess is as good as mine. And in the meantime, check out swampflix.com. We post movie reviews weekly. It used to be daily, but I get tired. I know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't do I, as much as I used to. I know. I, I need to get back into it because I liked it, like writing reviews. And I think, I don't know, once I get back on the train, I'm good. I just need to get back on it. Brittany, I will publish anything. I'm depraved. Bring it on. All right. It's going to be shitty because I can't write very well. <laughs> but here it comes. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was good. Lots of fun stuff. I liked it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look forward to incisive criticism like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. And we'll be doing more spooky horror movies until Halloween because that's what we really want to do on the show all the time, to be honest. (laughs) This is us being honest with ourselves for a couple months. Very true. Yeah. We can be our true selves. Then we go back to be like, let's watch movies that are smart, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Bye, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.